0: The Shame of Noah and the Curse of Canaan by B. A. Wiseman Shame visited the family of Noah after the flood, not unlike any other family today. Sin rears its ugly head even in the best of families, and even though we obviously wish it did not, we all know it does. The price of moral purity is firm conviction to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And fulfill the righteousness of the law. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Whatever it was that created the shame of Noah in the episode of Genesis 9, we know that Romans 8, verse 28 means that all things work together for good to those called of God. And we also know that a sovereign God works out all things according to his own perfect will. From Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. The shame of Noah's nakedness and the curse of Canaan's grandfather imposed upon him has occasioned much speculation among Bible students over many centuries. The biblical account of this event is told in 12 terse verses, from Genesis chapter 9, verses 18-29, through 29, leaving the student of Scripture wishing that further information could have been provided there appears to be minimal information in extra-biblical literature to assist the development of this narrative, and a search through the archives of theological history leads only to much speculation. Perhaps it's a good thing we are not given more specific details of what occurred inside Noah's tent. Hollywood might have taken the movie set inside the tent, and no telling what kind of a story they might have fabricated for poor Noah. For reasons we don't understand, our sovereign God chose to refrain from providing any concrete information beyond what is contained in the scanty account in Genesis. This author wishes to add one more voice to the chorus of speculation that has already been advanced in trying to understand the Genesis account of Noah's episode of drunkenness, and the apparent events that occurred during his inebriation, and the ensuing curse that he pronounced upon his grandson, Canaan, in the aftermath. This excursion is undertaken with full acknowledgment that it is not wise to be dogmatic in evaluating this account. This author wishes to tread carefully and humbly in full realization that it is not wise to venture too far from shore when we have so little scriptural information to guide us. With this in mind, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. And let's take a walk through the account of Noah's shameful state of drunkenness and the curse imposed upon Canaan. The goal is to confine this study to the briefest possible commentary and avoid what might become speculative dissertations that are not at all fruitful. A brief analysis. From verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These pertinent facts stand out in this declaration. Number one, Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. While all three sons begat sons, some sixteen in all, the Holy Spirit emphasizes in this narrative Only one of these 16 grandsons of Noah, Canaan. Number two, the fact that Ham is proclaimed to be the father of Canaan seems to be significant. Why Canaan was signaled out for special mention appears significant in understanding the narrative that follows. Verse 19, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. Number 1. Noah was the progenitor of three sons before the Flood, and of none after the Flood, meaning the entire Adamic posterity on the earth after the Flood issued from Noah's loins. Since the Bible proclaims itself to be the book of the generations of Adam, from Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it's vain and absurd to assume that the several distinct and separate races of God's creation descended from Noah, This would defy all laws of nature, refute all the known laws of reproduction, disgrace the word of God, and give full, unbridled endorsement to evolutionary humanism. Number two. The Bible concerns itself only with the Caucasian posterity of Adam and the genealogies issuing from Shem, Ham, and Japheth after the flood. That other distinct and separately created races were aboard the ark is not discussed in Scripture, because, from the beginning, the Bible announced itself to be the history of Adam and his posterity alone. Rest assured that all the separate and distinct races were created within the original design of our Creator, before Adam was formed of the dust of the ground. All the races were given distinctive qualities, with their Creator pronouncing it good. Look to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. From verses 20 and 21, we read, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Several relevant points can be attained from these verses. Number one, it must have been many years after Noah and his company departed the ark before this event occurred. You see, it takes time to plant and nurture a vineyard. But more than this, consider the number of years required to transpire before Canaan would have been born. Ham had no children when he departed the ark. Look to Genesis 8 verse 16. Further, Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. Look to Genesis 10 verse 6. With Cush, Mizraim, and Foot having preceded him. Number two. It would impugn the sterling character of Noah to believe that he willingly became drunk. While there is nothing in the narrative to suggest why Noah might have indulged himself to the point of drunkenness, we know that drunkenness is a highly profiled sin, one that Noah would not want to be guilty of, lest he mar his otherwise notable character. How Noah ended up drunk is left to speculation. It's not unusual for a person in a state of inebriation to remove his clothing, although this generally happens when inappropriate sexual behavior is underway. We must accept the fact that Scripture says that Noah lay uncovered, naked in his tent. Number three. Many a scholar points out that prior to the flood, there was no fermentation of the grape juice. Thus radical changes that came to the earth and its atmosphere after the flood brought about the process of fermentation. Number four, the traditional interpretation of this narrative follows a literal rendering with the belief that Noah, however it might have occurred, lay drunk in his tent. Upon discovery of this indiscretion, Ham told his other two brothers, who arrived on the scene, and they walked backwards covering the naked body of their drunken father. Traditionalists insist that if any type of moral perversion had taken place within Noah's tent, it would be revealed in the scripture. From verses 22 through 26. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward, And covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Many positions have been advanced in the endeavor to define the nature of the event within Noah's tent. Conventional wisdom is the literal interpretation and simply indicates that Noah lied drunken in his tent, and his son Ham was motivated to report the matter to his brothers Shem and Japheth. The brothers gathered up some sort of garment, draped it over their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the naked body of their father, careful not to look upon his nakedness. The strength of this position is that it appears clear from the narrative that Noah lay drunk and naked in his tent. Moreover, traditionalists point out that Ham gazed upon the nakedness of his father and then notified his two brothers, who, finding their father in this shameful condition, walked backwards and covered their father's naked body. Traditionalists hold strictly to the text and insist that if any moral perversion with another person were underway, Genesis would clearly say so. Of course, the traditional interpretation has been challenged for a number of reasons. Many people have difficulty trying to reconcile a righteous man like Noah, lying naked in a drunken stupor. Still, others wonder why Ham would gaze upon his naked father, or why Ham would have failed to cover his father's naked body on his own initiative. We can understand that nakedness was surely not pleasing to God, for he himself, Declined the apron of fig leaves designed by Adam and Eve, and replaced them with coats of skin. Look to Genesis chapter 3 verse 21. Which were a shadow of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers the sinful nature of man and makes him fit for the presence of God. The biblical record is clear. Both Shem and Japheth became proactive once they knew of the status of their father. They walked backward because they did not want to gaze upon his naked body. Then they covered his nakedness. The traditional, conventional view is often challenged and sometimes refuted by those who insist that something far more sinister must have been taking place inside of Noah's tent. These views are all based on personal speculation, and in reality, anyone who seeks to define the basis for the curse placed upon Canaan must do so without the clear weight of Scripture. One is forced to weigh in on all of the potential options and choose the one that seems to carry the greatest weight of conceptual biblical truth. While the case of nakedness is condemned in Scripture, does it warrant placing a curse upon Canaan by his grandfather? And if Ham were the one who gazed upon his naked father, why should another, in this case Canaan, be charged with his father Ham's sin this is especially true because Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 and elsewhere in the Bible confirm that the soul that actually commits the sin shall die. It seems evident that there was something about Canaan that made him deserving of this curse. Some Bible scholars offer into evidence Leviticus chapter eighteen verses seven and eight and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, in support of another definition for the nakedness of the father, seeking to establish that the nakedness in Noah's tent might have involved more than just an uncovered, naked, drunk man. You see, the Bible defines the nakedness of the father in the following manner. From Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, we read, And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness, Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Those who advance this position believe that Ham, not unlike Reuben, in Genesis chapter 35 verse 32, went in and defiled his father's bed by being physically intimate with Noah's wife, who would have been either Ham's mother or stepmother. Another speculation is that Canaan was the one who entered the tent and either committed incest with Noah's wife, or committed sodomy upon Noah, thus justifying the curse. Those who advance this position believe that the expression, younger son, in Genesis 9, verse 24, refers to Canaan, not Ham, since it was customary in biblical culture to refer to a grandson as a son. Those who advance this position seek to justify why the curse was placed upon Canaan, if he was actually not involved in the incident. Of course, there are those who argue that Ham actually committed an act of sodomy on his father, and that Noah was simply trying to get even by placing a curse on Canaan, Ham's son. But one thing is certain. There is no end to the speculation that has arisen over the centuries regarding the shame of Noah and the curse of Canaan, So, what are we left with in this matter? Let's begin with the known facts. In the solution to any mystery, one must begin with the known fact. What are those facts? Number one. This event, with Noah lying naked in his tent, was many years after the Flood. Developing a vineyard took considerable time, and even more time was required for Ham to become the father of three sons, who were born ahead of Canaan. Canon was on the scene when the event of Genesis 9, verse 20-23 through occurred. Number two. What we know about Noah is that he was a virtuous, upright, godly man who lived in full compliance with Jehovah. Aside from the episode in Genesis 9, there is not a single negative about Noah in Scripture. Thus, we must be extremely guarded in assigning any sin to Noah that Scripture does not confirm. Number 3. On the authority of the apostle Peter, we can confirm that all 8 souls who were aboard the ark were Adamite and therefore were eligible candidates for salvation. We can rightly state that all 8 Adamite souls who stepped from the ark were noble stock, including Noah's wife and three sons, from 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20. Number 4 we can correctly demonstrate the significance of knowing that Ham is the father of Canaan, since this can be verified in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 and 22, where this fact is emphasized twice, and still again in Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. Number five. We can reasonably assume that whatever happened inside of Noah's tent was quite important for at least two reasons. First, The mere fact that it was added to the Genesis record shows the event was important. Secondly, the curse imposed upon Canaan had implications that reached to the end of the age. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 21. A major question. What might have been the overarching reason for the inclusion of this incident in the Genesis record? After all, Can you just imagine all of the events that might be chronicled from this time frame? Surely there must have been profound reasons for including this event in Scripture. Perhaps this scene provided the means by which enmity or hostility placed by Jehovah between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent could be made effectual. Moreover, this would provide the connecting bridge between Cain, the pre-flood wicked seed, and Canaan, the post-flood wicked seed. The enmity between the two seeds of Genesis 3, verse 15. It is a fact that the enmity placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3:15 had to continue after the flood to confirm the prophetic word. That Canaan is to post-flood history, as Cain was to the pre-flood era, is readily discernible by the fact of the curse placed upon him. You see, Cain was cursed after the fall in pre-flood history, while Canaan bore the curse after the flood. The enmity of Genesis 3, verse 15 had to exist within the walls of the ark in order for the veracity of Genesis to remain in unbroken continuity. That enmity must have been with the unclean seed of the serpent who came aboard the ark. A fact with Genesis 6 and 7 seem to establish... And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark. From Genesis 6, verse 19. And they went in unto Noah, into the ark, two and two of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in, male and female, of all flesh. From Genesis 7, verses 15 and 16. It would be much easier to assume that the seed of the serpent went into the ark than to argue that they were not included in all flesh wherein is the breath of life. The inference in all of this is that Ham, obviously, was involved in physical intimacy with a member of this wicked seed after the flood. Hence the offspring of this illicit seed was Canaan. The sin that took place within Noah's tent was obviously the result of either the nefarious sin perpetrated by Ham or his bastard son, Canaan. The narrative of Genesis 9 is patently clear. Whatever sin did occur resulted from the actions of either Ham or Canaan. Whether this act was sodomy against Noah himself or incest with Noah's wife, the result is the same it provided divine providence with the opportunity to prove unbroken continuity of the serpent seed through the judgment of the flood, and demonstrates that Canaan would take up the role that Cain had played in pre-flood history. As a side note, remember, Canaan was already alive when the incident in Noah's tent occurred. This would eliminate Canaan from being a child conceived by any woman that Noah might have married after the flood. Cain bore the curse of God before the flood, while Canaan bore the curse of God after the flood. One doesn't need to be a rocket scientist to make the cain canaan connection of this wicked seed. If Jesus Christ and the apostles could do it, why can we not expect Christians in the 21st century to wise up and do the same? Jesus Christ traced the wicked seed of Satan back through the flood to the person of Cain, in Matthew chapter 23 verses 33 through 35 and John chapter 8 verses 33 through 47 and again in the parable of the wheat and the tares found in Matthew chapter 13 verses 24 through 30 and verses 36 through 43 there has to be a connection between Cain pre-flood and Cain in post-flood or the very testimony of Jesus Christ is called into question Moreover, the Apostle John had no problem identifying Cain as being of that wicked one. From First John chapter 3, verses 11-12. Conclusions Whatever else Jehovah may have intended by the inclusion of the event within Noah's tent after the flood, it had a primary purpose of demonstrating the unbroken continuity of the seed of the serpent through the great flood just as sure as there was an unbroken continuity of the woman's seed in the flood through Noah and his son Shem. Just as Cain was the primary representative of this wicked seed before the flood, Canaan became the poster child for the wicked seed of Satan after the flood. The descendants of Canaan played a dominant role in subsequent history, beginning with the genealogy of Canaan's several sons in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15-19. through 19. And thereafter, they continued to remain a thorn in the side of the covenant seed, descending from Noah, Shem, Arphaxad, Salah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Serug, Nahor, Terah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve tribes of Israel. The curse of Canaan assuredly moved forward in time and history with the descendants of Canaan, and plays a significant role even today. The shame of Noah ended in the identification of the progenitor of the serpent seed after the flood. Nothing in scripture appears by chance. Divine providence has used this otherwise shameful event in the life of Noah to identify the serpent seed in post-flood history. Glory to God! May the final consummation of the prophetic announcement in Genesis 3.15 take place quickly. At that point, Matthew 13, verse 30 will reach fulfillment, and Jesus Christ will crush Satan, the head of the serpent, beneath his feet. From Romans chapter 16, verse 20. When that glorious day arrives, there will be no more Canaanites in the house of the living God, or any place else on this earth.